I'm Ruth Seidel, the associate pastor here at North, and today we're moving on in our study of Psalm 23. We've been in pleasant green fields and quiet waters, and now we move to the valley of thick darkness, sometimes translated the shadow of death. And I think it's kind of timely that we have this open pit right next to me, so I will not be wandering the stage, as Scott often does, even though I'm, it's, I've told the net will catch me. <laughs> I'm not going to test that out. Um, but as I thought about this darkness, the Hebrew word literally describes a place utterly without light. And I thought, uh, as Anna prayed this morning for Syri- the Syrian families who are experiencing this kind of dark valley of unknown, and some of you are walking paths uh, emotionally or physically or spiritually or relationally that feel dark and heavy, where it's so thick that you can't see your hand in front of your face. When you're in that kind of place, I want to know what are the boundaries for my safety and will my faith hold? What are the things that are anchoring me? Are my anchors set in firm rock? I have a, a daughter, and when she was four, and taking gymnastics, the gymnastics teacher said to the class, to the parents of the class, it would be a really good idea to get um, uh, trampoline because trampolines help kids to be comfortable in the air. And then she said, who's Shannon's mom? And I raised my hand and she said, you should not get a trampoline. (laughs) She said, Shannon is very comfortable in the air. And she is, as this picture will show (laughs) She's very comfortable in the air, and that's a gorgeous picture I have on my wall at home, but I'm the mom of that girl, (laughs) and what I want to know is, who's holding the rope? (laughs) Uh, How good are the anchors? Who placed them? Because those are the boundaries of her safety, a rope, her companions, and some anchors in a rock. And I think Psalm 23.4 is going to give us some anchors, some of the boundaries of safety that we need to rely on when we are in dark valleys. And they are the ones I'm going to talk about today are the boundary of God's love, the boundary of God's presence, and the boundary of God's comfort. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful this morning for your presence with us. We're grateful for this family and community on which we rely, and we're grateful for the ways that we see you along our week, along our days, and especially in dark valleys. I pray especially for those this morning who may be feeling they are in a dark place, Lord, that this would be a word of encouragement, that they would hear you draw near to them today in the words of this psalm. In Christ's name, amen. So the first boundary I'm going to talk about is the one that anchors David, especially as he walks in thick darkness, and it's the belief that God has defeated evil, that God is in the process of defeating evil, and that ultimately God will defeat the power of evil. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. King David, who wrote it, had experienced lots of dark places. He experienced betrayal. He, dis- he experienced the loss of love. He experienced the loss of a child. He experienced rejection and oppression. 
He lived literally in dark caves for years, and he knew the smell and the taste of death. But he, compl- he, he proclaims to us that even in those places where he is blinded by darkness, he will not fear evil. A lot of people today don't want to believe there even is evil. That's one way of dealing with it, pretending it's not there. But the scripture teaches that evil is real, that there's a being who is actively seeking our destruction. And sometimes we place it in people. We think it's our boss, or we think it's our family member, or we think it's our neighbor. But the scripture says it's the devil, not with a pitchfork and tail, But you can see his work and recognize it. And here's three ways that you might see his work. From 1 Peter 5, he's the one who looks for ways to destroy a life. You can think about the ways life gets destroyed. Those are the work of the devil. He's the voice of lies and deception. Many of us have a critic that is the voice of someone who tells us lies. He's a thief who wants to steal joy, contentment, peace, harmony among us. When that happens, that's the work of the devil. And we're told in Scripture that we're supposed to be sober. We're supposed to be awake to the presence of evil in the world. And we pray in the Lord's Prayer to be delivered from evil. But 1 John 3, 8 tells us that the whole reason Jesus came was to destroy the devil's work. That was Jesus' work. And he did it. As Paul declares in Romans 8, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height or depth, nor anything in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love is the boundary for evil. Nothing, absolutely nothing, can come between us and God's love, not even evil. God's got it. We will, may and will, experience all kinds of hardships. And the description there, we are as sheep going to the slaughter, doesn't exactly sound like a road of ease and comfort. But we know that God, in fact, sifts what touches us. Everything that touches our life comes through the loving hand of God. Not that God is ever the source of evil. We know he is not. But that he cares so intimately about each one of us that nothing touches us that he is not allowed. I think this is one of the hardest anchors to hold on to when we are in a dark place, and especially when evil splashes onto our life. Most of you, I hope, have heard of of Johnny Erickson Tata. Um, I first encountered her. She's just a few years older than me, so I remember reading her book when I was 20 and being really touched because she was someone my age, She had a diving accident that left her without the use of her arms and legs, and I read of her depression and her hopelessness and her horror, and I could imagine it because I was that age. I've now 
had the joy of watching her life unfold for five decades. I've heard she's one of the longest surviving quadriplegics. She is also one of the best theologians on suffering and on heaven that I've ever read. In 1990, uh, I don't know if you know this, but when the American Disabilities Act was passed in 1990, religious organizations were the strongest opponents to that being passed. And Johnny stood in the face of that and supported it. And I think in my generation, she has done more to change the attitudes of this country towards people with disabilities than probably anyone else. Her organization trains disability-effective churches. They mentor and provide opportunities for people with all kinds of disabilities, including having provided now 100,000 wheelchairs to people in need around the world. In her book, When God Weeps, Why Our Suffering Matters to the Almighty, she says this, and I've, it's lingered a lot, long time in my thinking. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. She says, that truth set me free along with other truths like leaning daily on God's grace and realizing that God's children are never victims. Everything that touches their lives, he permits. The irony is, she says, you can't imagine a more victimized person than Jesus, yet when he died, he didn't say, I am finished. He said, it is finished. He did not play the victim, and thus he emerged the victor. Forget the self-pity. True, your supervisor may be trying to push you out of your job. Your marriage may be a fiery trial. You might be living below the poverty level. But victory is ours in Christ. His grace is sufficient. It's easier to hear those words from Johnny, I think. Know this truth, and it will set you free. This day, Jesus, I can feel sorry for myself or victorious in you. Show me how to choose the latter. We do not fear evil, not because we aren't going to suffer, but because we don't suffer meaninglessly, and we don't suffer without hope. If God is our shepherd, even the splash of evil on our lives, even quadriplegia, even the devastation of addiction, even death on the cross— can be shaped by God's love to bring life, to bring joy, to bring hope to the world. Johnny says that she does not uh, present a picture of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. She says, when you're dealing with people who suffer, when you're hurting hard, you're not helped or inspired by a syrupy picture of the Lord. When your heart is being wrung out like a sponge, you don't want a thin, pale, emotional Jesus who relates only to lambs, birds, and babies. You want a warrior. You want a battlefield, Jesus. When you're in a dark place with lions surrounding you, you need strong help to rescue you from impossibility. You don't want sweet. You want mighty. You want the strong arm and unshakable grip of God who will not let you go no matter what. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. God's got it. If you're in a dark valley, I would also say, don't stop. It says we walk through the valley. Dark valleys are not a good place to settle down. Sheep move often 
around the world from lowland kind of ranches and things in the wintertime as the snow melts. They are, herds are often moved up mountains and they usually walk up valleys. They go up valleys just like uh, many of us do when we're hiking. And that's because valleys are where the water is, where the provision is, where there is shade and shelter. Valley paths move us to higher ground. Divorce, unemployment, injustice, illness, loss of all kinds. Don't let the valley become your whole story. Maybe it's just a difficult chapter in a really good book. Evil is boundaried by God's love. The second boundary that keeps us safe as we walk dark valleys is that of God's presence. God's presence is the boundary for our fear. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The first three verses of Psalm 23, David speaks of God in the third person. He says, he leads me, he guides me, he makes me lie down in green pastures. But now that he's moved into the shadowlands of loss and evil and fear, David speaks now from the second person, more personally, you. You are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You anoint my head. You prepare a table. It's your goodness and love that follow me. This is a really important move from he to you. Martin Buber talks about it in his book, I and Thou, that this is essentially one of the big movements, ways we have to decide about how we're going to encounter the world. Are we going to stay scientifically aloof in the I and it encounter with the world? Or are we going to allow ourselves fully into encounter in what he calls I-thou relationships? Who is God for you? That's an important question this morning. Who is God? Is he aloof, creator, all-powerful he? Or have you encountered and connected with God so that you can say you, my shepherd, my Abba, my friend? It's in encounters with God, bringing all of who we are, body, soul, and spirit, that's the place that transformation actually happens in our lives. We've talked about it as we've gone through this series. Joseph, a few weeks ago, and his, his wrestling with God. Paul, being knocked off a donkey by the very presence of Christ. And if you missed church last week, you really need to go back and listen, um, listen to our church experience last week because we had two powerful stories from Bethany high schoolers. Ella and Luke courageously shared their experience of God's presence and transformation in what can be a dark valley called high school. It was really powerful, and I'd encourage you to listen online if you missed it. Encounters with God are most often, it feels like, reported in those dark valleys, like addiction or prison, or when the bottom falls out of your life in some way. So if you are in a dark valley, don't miss looking for signs that God is with you. This is an opportunity for that kind of vital contact with God that really transforms us. Hebrews 13 says, God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. We, therefore, can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. Psalm 34 says, if your heart is broken, 
you'll find God right there. If you're kicked in the gut, he'll help you catch your breath. Valleys create an intimacy in our relationship with God that is attested to time and time again, at least by my friends who are widows or divorced or cancer survivors or recovering from addiction or disabled. I had a friend named Jean uh, who was an accomplished gardener, and I visited her what turned out to be a few days before she died. And she was reminding me, she was a, had a beautiful garden, and she reminded me that as she worked earth and water and seeds into the miracle of what was an extraordinary garden, God was in the same way transforming the darkest place, the hardest struggle of her life, into a place of beauty and fruitfulness. And I asked her what she could possibly consider a gift from her experience with cancer. And she said that the most important gift she'd received was a deep, intimate experience with Christ. Jean had studied the Bible with us at CBS for years, but she said, I lived into that truth when I was sick. As I was leaving her in the hospital, I said, I'm so sorry to leave you alone. And she said, Ruth, I'm never alone. She said, I'm, I have been intimately aware in this whole process, in every treatment, in every restless night, in my pain and in my storm, that Jesus has been present. She said, my favorite story is the one with Jesus in the storm. And she said, I, I like to say, I would rather be in the storm of cancer with Jesus than on the shore in a healthy body without him. Jean knew that she was held that she was loved in God's arms, and her pain caused her to pull closer to his heart. Fear is boundaried by God's presence. You are not alone. The third boundary that keeps us safe as we walk dark valleys in shadow lands is God's comfort. And I would change that word this morning to say God's provision, because I think the way that God comforts us is by providing. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When I read that, I go, rod and staff, that doesn't sound comforting to me. (laughs) And then I looked up what they are, still not comforting. A rod is um, like a defensive weapon a shepherd would have. Um, And in fact, David talks about, you know, killing a lion or killing a bear with his rod. Um, Shepherds also, I guess, learned to be very accurate in throwing their rods so they could move the sheep away from something dangerous. And the the shepherd would put the rod across the opening where the sheep were coming in at night and would count them and also kind of check them out one by one to see if they had wounds or disease or needed some kind of care. And then a staff is more like that picture we see with the crook, you know, the tall kind of a walking stick. And it was used, I guess, to more subtly kind of move sheep where they needed to be or to disentangle them when they got caught in brambles. A staff was also used, um, Moses and Aaron had them, remember, as it's sort of an authority, a picture of authority, and uh, Moses hit the Nile with his staff to make it part. But I'm not sure that being prodded or directed or examined sounds like comfort to us. And yet... That is the comfort the sheep gets from a shepherd, that the shepherd is, in fact, protecting and guiding and seeing personally to the needs of the sheep. God's provision of protection and guidance and care is a huge comfort as we walk in a valley. 
yesterday, I had time to spend with a friend uh, named Zoe, and her husband of 59 years, Chuck, died two weeks ago um, today, actually. And she was telling me about the remarkable ways that she had seen God's provision in the months that had led up to this. She said, we had the most tender conversation with Chuck's cardiologist the day that he told us there was no more treatment. She's seen God's personal care for her in sweet things that her neighbors have done. She saw it in her visit to the Social Security office. Someone said to her, oh, you were hanging out with the riffraff. And she said, no, I sat in that room and realized everyone has a story. And she was so touched by the generosity of the person who helped her at the Social Security office. And I noticed that in her story, she credits God at every turn because she sees every piece of care as coming from him. And it made me think about, am I awake? And are you awake? Are we awake to God's provision? Most often in my valleys, God's care has come through other people. Um, It's been an encouraging email at just the right time, or sometimes money in just when some unexpected money went out. Or it's been a book, or a support group, or a meal at just the right time, or a walk with a friend. What has God provided in your dark valleys? I have taken to writing them down because I forget what God has provided, or sometimes I don't pay attention. And when I started working at Bethany Green Lake uh, almost five years ago now, um, I had had no experience working in a church, and um, I didn't know anyone there. I didn't go to attend that church, so I didn't know people. And I kind of sat at my desk like, well, what do I do now? And there was a, minist- a large women's ministry that needed a co-leader. There was a co-leader w- that had some gifts and needed a person with some other gifts to help that go well. And I was sitting there praying about that one morning, and in my office, Liz walks in and says, Hi, you're new. How can I help? (laughs) A congregant. Um, And I said, Wow, I was just praying about a particular ministry. Let me tell you about it and see if you might be interested. And so I put her in touch with the other leader, Tara, not knowing at all if this would be a good match. Liz came back to tell me that 20 years before, she had had a difficult pregnancy It all turned out fine, but she went through a lot of medical care, including almost weekly sonograms. The sonogram specialist was Tara. (laughs) They had traveled that together. They they, They both had recognized they were Christians. They had even prayed together and really connected. They didn't know they both went to Bethany, and they have been, they co led that ministry that year. For me, that was the touch of God's hand telling me, I've got it, Ruth. He does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. George Mueller is a man famous for his trust in God. He cared for thousands of orphans in Britain in the 1800s. He never took a personal salary. He never did fundraising. He never asked anyone but God for money. He relied only on God to supply the money and the food needed for those thousands of orphans. And he kept a motto on his desk from 1 Peter 5.7, his motto said, It matters to him about you. And he testified at the end of his life that the Lord had never failed to supply his need. Do you know that deeply this morning? It matters to him about you. 
you are the object of his concern. He's not too busy with Syria or keeping the stars from colliding. You are on the front burner of God's heart. He has no more pressing business than to see Christ's love, joy, and peace formed in you forever. Johnny says, he has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. God's got it. You are not alone. It matters to him about you. Paul Gebbin is in my Connect group, and a couple of weeks ago, he told a story to the group that I asked him to, to come and share with you this morning as our closing. Good morning. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Yeah, but what if they've got AK-47s? So let me... Let me invite you back to March 2003. It's 18 months after the attacks of 9-11. And my wife and I feel called to join other members of a church group who are traveling to the Middle East, who are traveling to Algeria, to take our children, Nick, 13, our daughter, Emma, 11, along with this group, to meet with a people group called the Sahrawi people. They've been driven out of their country of Western Sahara and forced to flee into the desert in Algeria where 25 years before they set up in four different refugee camps. And these people are known as the forgotten people. And our hope and what we believed our calling was was to go and to be with these people and to remind them that they were not forgotten. And at that time... Terrorism was in the news every day, and there was a CIA travel advisory against Americans going to Algeria. Americans had been kidnapped by uh, bands of terrorists, and it was not deemed advisable to go. And we prayed, and we went to Chicago, and we flew to Rome, and then we flew to Algiers, and then we flew to the western part of uh, Algeria to a military base called Tindouf. And we had been warned ahead of time when we traveled not to take any pictures in Tindouf because as a military base, our presence as Americans there would be tolerated, but we would not be welcomed. And so after about 30 hours of exhausting travel, we arrive there and we load up um, into these vehicles. And our group of 50 splits into four different groups depending on which camp we're going to. We're going to Camp Leun. There's a bus and there's a Toyota Land Cruiser and Nick, Emma, Maureen, and I get in the back of this Land Cruiser with a spare tire and, and luggage. There's no seats. And um, we take off into the darkness. Our driver and the leader of the group in the front of the vehicle. And we're driving and we're driving and we're driving down this highway. And we start to slow and I'm trying to peer out the windshield to see where we're going. And apparently for what feels like no reason at all, we just take a sharp right turn and head off into the desert. And it's pitch black. And that doesn't make any sense to me. And I look around and I can't see anything. There's no roads. There's no scrub. It's just like the world's biggest gravel road. We are officially in the middle of nowhere. 
And we keep driving and driving and driving. And then out of nowhere come these two military half-tracks and they pull in front of our two vehicles and cut us off. And, and we come to a stop and the backs of these two trucks open up and out of them comes like 10, 20, 30 guys in military garb, head wraps, and they're all carrying AK-47s and they surround our vehicles. And there's yelling and there's yelling, and everybody looks really angry at us. And in that moment, I am terrified. I'm reminded of the CIA travel advisory, and I'm thinking, do we make a huge mistake? What have we done? What if I brought my family into this? And then this thought, Lord, have you brought us in the, into the desert to die and at that moment my wife Maureen said we could pray and so we did and the only thing the only words that came to me the words the spirit gave to me were the words of Psalm 23 and we, we began to pray the Lord is my shepherd and we prayed the words for thou art with me What we later learned was that these men with weapons were kind of a hybrid between the Algerian military and border patrol. And we were near the western edge of the country. We were near Morocco. And they had assumed that we were smugglers racing through the night. And they eventually let us go. And we went off to our camp in Leon. And about eight days later, after being in the country and being with these people, we got to meet with the president of the Sahara people. And he told us this story. And he said, you know, I met with the president of Qatar, or Qatar. And I told the president of Qatar, you know, the, the people that are the best friends of the Sahrawi people are these Christians from America. And he said, the president of Qatar just looked shocked at me. And he said, well, my Muslim Brothers and neighbors, they send us money and they send us recruiters and they try to get our young men to leave the camps and join in their fight. But the Christians, they bring their families. They heal our sick. They teach our children. And we share bread with them. The Lord is my shepherd. If you're in a dark valley this morning, I've got three practical uh, things I want you to consider. The first one is simply to name it and own it. You don't have to be Pollyanna saying everything's okay. If you're in a dark valley, name it and own it. And the second thing is don't go alone. Don't even go alone with God. God has provided a community for you. Here at Bethany North, we have Stephen's ministers who are trained volunteers, and that's what they do, is come alongside to spiritually encourage people in dark valleys, to walk with them week by week, however long your valley takes. Our prayer team is here every Sunday up front, available to support you and to care for you. They would love to meet with you this morning at, at the close of the service. So name it and own it. 
Don't go alone and stay awake to God's provision. Let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that your shepherd's heart would strengthen the weak this morning, that, they, that your heart would bind up the injured, that you would seek the lost and bring back those who are straying from you. Heavenly Father, give peace to those who have come troubled this morning and give courage to those who are fearful. Comfort the brokenhearted this morning because of your great love. In Christ's name, amen.